Totally blue balled me there. <laughs> <sighs> that was the goal. Don't take care of y'all chicken. You feel me? Don't take care of y'all mental. Welcome into the Fantasy Persecution Podcast. I am your host, Brett Pelshotti. With me now, and always, is my boy, Kyle Settle. What's going on, my dude? That was the most disgusting week of football I've ever seen in my life. And I don't think any other week <laughs> even comes close. That yeah, was you, disgusting. You have to, like, chop and screw the, the recap music so it's all slow yeah. and shitty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, to represent the week properly, for sure. Yeah, I mean... Uh, it was terrible. I mean, it seems like, I don't know if this is just anecdotal, but it seems like quarterbacks around the league aren't throwing for as many yards on average this year. It seems like a lot of guys are, are more hit and miss players than, we're, than we've seen in the past. I don't know. It just doesn't yeah. feel like a, a great fantasy season. Yeah, I can't put my finger on it either, but it was def- there was definitely something off this last week. The week before, I finally felt like maybe for the first time all season that I've was starting to finally get a hold of everything. Felt like I had a firm grip on where the league was. And then, yeah, I was reminded very quickly, this is still the National Football League and literally anything can happen. Yeah. Uh, one week makes a massive difference. And yeah, obviously, we're going to talk about every game that happened this past week. But first, I wanted to kind of pick your brain here. Who is the yeah, most yeah. surprising teams thus far, whether it be the overperformers or the underperformers? So I don't want to say because I have a name off the top of my head, and I don't want to say like they're not legit or they're overperforming or getting lucky or anything like that, but the most surprising for me has by far been the Arizona Cardinals, and I think that a lot of people would probably share that sentiment. But to be nine weeks into the season, sitting at 8-1, and one, the top seed in all of the NFL right now, I, I think I picked an over-under with them at like nine and a half wins before the season, and I felt so confident in that under. But yeah, that's going to cash in like a week and a half, so good yeah. job. It's, I think the, the biggest surprise there is that the coaching hasn't derailed them yet. Like in close yes. games, they've been fine. You know, okay. and usually teams with bad coaches, that's what you're worried about. It's like the, the critical moments, the, uh, the third and fourth and shorts, the, you know, fourth down two minute or the fourth quarter two minute drills, stuff like that. It really hasn't affected them yet. I mean, their talent has definitely overwhelmed a lot of teams. And Kingsbury, a coach that coming into the season before he had all the success that he's had, he was a guy that was squarely on the hot seat. Like we, I know you and I weren't particularly sold on him, and that wasn't a, a bold claim. A lot of people felt the same way, but he's putting the doubters to rest this year. And at eight and one, they're looking pretty. Yeah, and and everybody's living like everybody's eating in Arizona. It's not like they have yeah. a. There's not a straightforward approach to stop them. That's why I think that. Uh, like you said, it's not just a fluke. You know, they, they have a lot of things going for them. It's not just Kyler's playing at MVP level and he's dragging the team with him. There's a lot of talent on that roster and it's finally yeah, starting to show itself. Uh, what about on the other side? Who do you think is just like, wow, I can't believe they're not good? Oh, well, San Francisco is probably the, the team that I was to stay in the same division. They've, I know they've been injured, they've been hurt left and right, but. For the main cast, like Garoppolo has stayed mostly healthy. I know you lost Kittle for a while, but Debo Samuels played every game. Uh, Brandon Ayuk played when, when Shanahan lets him play. Uh, the running backs have been sort of a mixed bad, but Elijah Mitchell's been great. And then obviously there's 
scattered injuries on the defense, but nothing that you can point out and be like, oh, this is the reason they're terrible. Just as a team, they're underperforming. Who's more on a hot seat right now, Cliff Kingsbury or Kyle Shanahan? Yeah, we talked about it last week. Kingsbury's definitely not on any sort of hot seat after this season. It would it would take a drastic falling out here in the second half. But Shanahan is right there, and it, you hate to see it because everyone loves Shanahan, or at least I feel like we did a few years ago. But the new car smell is fading. <laughs> I don't know. I just pictured him like as like a used car salesman. He <laughs> said, "This new car." <laughs> Anyway. But the way he dresses, like that wouldn't surprise me. Could you imagine right, him yeah. trying to sell you something from the dealership with the flat bill? <laughs> He's got like a sport coat that's like three sizes too big. He's got like long <laughs> baggy Spot baggies. on. <laughs> Looks like you pulled him straight out of what was that uh, 90s pool, pool hall junkies. Pool hall junkies. He'd, <laughs> he'd be dressed exactly like everyone in that movie. <laughs> Absolutely. But I never said I could tell you where you bought your shoes, Merv. I said I could tell you where you got them. And right now, you got your shoes on your feet. Oh, hate it when that happens. All right, man, let's move on to the news and the notes. Ladies and gentlemen, can I please have your attention? I've just been handed an urgent and horrifying news story. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. Cannonball! Actually, actually, read all about it. Check it out. Newspapers for sale. We have breaking news. Breaking news. I'm toasted. You are fake news. And boom goes the dynamite. So we're still waiting for news on Odell Beckham. Last word, uh, I don't know what you saw last, but what I've seen most recently is that it's down to three teams, the Packers, the Saints, and the Chiefs. Yeah. Uh, and word is that the Packers have given an offer, but it is at league minimum. Is that what you're hearing? That is the same thing that I'm hearing, and by the time this episode publishes, we're recording right now about 3 o'clock in the afternoon East Coast time on Wednesday. It'll be up tomorrow morning, so there's a very good chance that we already have an Odell signing by the time you're listening to this. But yeah, down to those last three teams, the Packers submitted the league minimum uh, offer to him, but a good point that was made um, from the Spotrack Twitter account is that the language in Odell's uh, contract means up to the $4.25 million that he's owed from Cleveland. Sorry, what's the best way to explain that? So the $4.25 million that Odell is owed from Cleveland, whatever he gets in a contract for this season will not be any additional money up to that amount, if that makes sense. So the $4.25 he's going to get, Cleveland's on the hook for. Say he gets the veteran minimum, which I think is something like $750,000. That money is subtracted from what Cleveland owes him. So unless he signs a contract worth more than $4.25 million, which is unlikely at this point, the number is really just going to be a where is that money coming from. So for that reason, and obviously by the time this comes out, we may already have the answer. It looks like it's going to be a veteran minimum contract. So some people took the offer made by Green Bay as, uh, hey, maybe they don't really care about getting them. No, I expect that to be the offer that he eventually ends up signing from somewhere. I can't imagine that of those three teams, anyone's going to push more than $4.25 million at him for this year because I think the Packers have the most cap space actually between the three teams, and they only have about $4.5 million, and they're trying to deal with a Devontae Adams extension. So I expect it to be a league minimum uh, contract wherever he ends up. Yeah, there, there's there's no way he's going to get more than 4.2 mil for half a season from one of these contending teams. Right. A lot of these teams don't have that money, and they would have to do some some cap wiggle, some cap acrobatics. Kinda, yeah, something interesting with the cap, right, to, to create right. that room. 
And uh, when you don't know if that guy's going to be on the team this time next year, it doesn't really seem like that great of an investment. Not to mention he hasn't shown much of anything recently. Uh, I'd say in the past two, three years since he's been with the Browns. So it's the, the only way I could see the number being exceeded is if he does end up, because there has been rumors floating around there, if he does end up signing a multi-year deal, which I don't think is really in play for the Packers given their cap situation and how they've pushed their chips in for this year. The Saints cap is always a mess, has been for the last few years. It would take, yeah, like you said, a lot of bending over backwards really for any of these three teams in order to make a multi-year extension work. So out of the three, if you're an Odell owner, who would you want him to go to? Well, not the Saints. That seems to be the consensus, I think, as far as would it rather be Kansas City or Green Bay. I think that's a push. It's going to be one year and I guess similar, not, not really similar offenses by play style, but both these offenses have a high enough ceiling that I think he, he recoups a little bit of fantasy value. I, I think he'd be a startable asset for the rest of the season and then next year plays out however it plays out. Yeah, I think I would rather have him on the Chiefs just because he doesn't really have anybody to compete with in Kansas City for those short to intermediate targets. Whereas, you know, Tyreek handles the deep stuff and uh, Travis Kelsey. What about Travis Kelsey, though? He's more of a scene player and a, you know, a sticks player. He's not going to be running like, you know, 15 yard in breaking routes. He'll settle down as like a 15 yard curl or something like that. But he's not really going to be running those cross the field routes that create explosive plays in the wide receiver position. Whereas in. Green Bay, you have Devontae Adams who can run and does run every single route in the book. Um, so he'll be competing with him a lot in that in that sense. So I think Kansas City would be better in terms of opportunity. In terms of who's going to have the most passing volume or you know who's going to throw for more yards and touchdowns between Mahomes and, and uh, Aaron Rodgers, it's a toss-up for the rest of the year. I, I couldn't sure. predict one way or another. But I just think opportunity-wise, Kansas City offers a little bit more. I do think I would agree with you from an X's and O's standpoint that Kansas City might be a little bit better. The main reason for the falling out with Odell and Baker, it wasn't necessarily, obviously the offense didn't suit him great, but it was when plays would sort of break down and you need that connection between a quarterback and a wide receiver to be able to be on the same page and know, hey, when X, Y, and Z happens, this is what my wide receiver is going to be doing. And over two and a half years in Cleveland, they were never on the same page. If that happens in Kansas City, though, Odell and his ability to make something happen outside of script would be placed with the best improviser in the history of the National Football League and Patrick Mahomes. And for that, yeah, I think Kansas City probably does have a little bit of a higher ceiling for a fantasy value. All right. Dalvin Cook. It's reported that he's involved in a domestic violence case. Uh, but word on the street is he's still planning to play Week 10. Uh, no word from the league quite yet. Um, this is a wait-and-see type of situation. Anytime that legalities are involved, you need to not play Twitter lawyer. Just wait until right. a real certifying official makes a uh, makes a statement on this, right? Whether it be the NFL or a insider with verifiable information right none, none of this i'm is- gonna i'm gonna dispute that right there because adam schefter is actually part of the reason that there's so much controversy and you know my feelings about yeah, schefter, you hate schefter and i feel like i feel like everyone sh- so don't get me wrong schefter is great at reporting news before anyone else but i don't want his opinion on anything because he's just been wrong far too often we've we saw it all summer with all the Aaron Rodgers stuff where he was just wrong. We see it now with the Dalvin Cook, and obviously this stuff is yet to shape out. We have no idea how it's going to go down. But he puts out a report, and then a couple hours later you have refuting reports, and 
doesn't look right there. We saw all the stuff with the Washington football team, how he was running his stories through Dan Schneider before he reported anything on the Washington football team, asking him to proofread these stories ahead of time. So I don't really trust Schefter's agenda whatsoever. If it comes to a transaction or anything official, absolutely, Schefter's your guy. But I don't care for his spin really on any news story. Yeah, I mean, I don't think going to Twitter for any opinion is really is really that, <laughs> no. that good. Uh, but Schefter has had some. Is that not stuff. a reputable source? <laughs> Uh, Schefter has had some sketchy reporting uh, in the past 12 months, which is so weird because yes. I feel like before this year, it was never the case. Never saw Nothing so case. high profile that I can think of, but yeah. also like the Washington football team thing, that happened several years ago. It's just now being brought to light. But yeah. you're right that nothing really came out that I could point to. Like My opinion of him over the last 12 months, really just since April and the draft and all that fallout, has changed so much. Uh, so you're more of a Rappaport guy, huh? <sighs> So Rappaport does McAfee, and I'm a huge McAfee guy. So I guess by association, but at the same time, he has the most punchable face of anyone in sports media. And it's nothing about him as a person, it's just his face. I don't know what it is about your face, but I want to deliver one of these right in your suck hole. Is there anything I can do to work on that? No, so not really. It's your face. It just, he Gar- needs I'm to fix Garifolo his fucking guy. face. Mike Garofolo. I, I enjoy Garofolo. I'm the, a big Garofolo guy. Northeast. Absolutely. But bringing this back that, but... outside of sports media, back to Dalvin Cook, <laughs> like you said, uh, not, a, not a lot of fantasy impact right now. I don't think we're looking at like a Deshaun Watson situation where he's going to be inactive while we wait for this to fall out or anything like that. Um, so you really just have to continue on the way you were going, approach him the same way. In Dynasty, Alexander Madison's not going to be available on your waivers, but if you were thinking about maybe putting in an overbid and trying to get him before this plays out, I wouldn't recommend that. We still, It's so early in the process, and we're seeing right now with Deshaun Watson how long some of these legal things some sometimes take. So it's very likely going to be at least the offseason before we have any more concrete news on this. Just sort of a continue as you were on the fantasy side of things. Oh, yeah. And there'll be you know, reports here and there. He's, he's the devil or he's a sweetheart. He wouldn't hurt anybody sure, sure. <laughs> coming out left yeah. and right. Uh, keep your head up. Don't read that. Shit. All right. Yep. Uh, on to the Browns, the running back room, almost whole running back room caught COVID. Uh, Dearness Johnson is still active, but I know Nick Chubb yep. and uh, Demetrius Felton are officially on the COVID-19 inactive list. And Kareem Hunt is, is uh, confirmed will not play week 10 either. So, Ernest Johnson is the lone back like he was just a few weeks ago, and we saw how that played out. Uh, yep. what, do you, what do you think about Ernest Johnson uh, going forward? So, obviously, Dearness Johnson had his shot a few weeks ago after the Kareem Hunt injury, and then, obviously, Nick Chubb as well, where he becomes a lead back, and he goes Thursday night football against Denver. So, Denver, in spite of their great showing that they had this last week, is not really that formidable of a run defense. The New England Patriots, on the other hand, Cleveland's opponent this week, very much a formidable run defense. So in fantasy points wise, they do allow a lot of catches to the running back, but as far as yards per carry actually running of the football, nah, they're a pretty pretty stout defense, I would say. So this is not going to be a cakewalk like we saw in that Thursday night game. Dearness Johnson is probably still someone you're considering putting in your lineup given bye weeks and all the injuries that have happened this season anyway. But I would say absolutely temper your expectation. I'm not expecting another 140-yard performance out of Dearness Johnson against the Patriots. Throw DPJ in there. Kick can do it all. On to the Week 9 recap. You ready, man? Let's do it. Down in voodoo country, the Falcons held on to a lead and defeated the Saints 27-24. Matt Ryan with a renaissance performance, finishing his QB3 on the week. 
and on Kyle's bench. Uh, and Cordell Patterson continues <laughs> to shock the world. He had 126 receiving yards. That was his first game over 100 yards receiving since December 8th, 2013. Kyle, can you guess the number one song in America, December 8th, 2013? Oh, how could I forget? That was obviously the one, the song. <laughs> Wrecking Ball by Miley fucking Cyrus. Ooh, there you go. Russell Gage with over a quarter of the Falcons' targets, but Alameda Zacchaeus stole the spotlight with two receiving touchdowns. Since Mark Ingram has rejoined the Saints, Alvin Kamara has seen his rush share drop by about 20% and his receiving target share down by about 10%, something to keep an eye on. The New Orleans Saints did work out a few running backs this week after Alvin Kamara was banged up in last week's contest, something to keep an eye on as we move towards game day. Next up to Dallas, where the Cowboys dismantled by the Bucking Broncos. Since week four, Melvin Gordon has gotten the end zone four times as compared to just twice by Javante Williams. Keep an eye on how that backfield shapes up down the stretch. Michael Gallup is expected back this week against Atlanta. The Cowboys trailed by 30 points in the fourth quarter. That's the largest deficit of Dak Prescott's career. Loss marking the seventh in a row for Denver over Dallas. How about them Cowboys? Well, how about Javante Williams? He has 35 forced missed tackles tied for the league lead with Nick Chubb, but his forced missed tackle rate stands alone at 37%. The next closest back is at 30%. Of the six upsets this week, for me, this was the most surprising. It was just a complete domination from start to finish. Over to North Carolina, where Sam Darnold is forever seeing ghosts versus the Patriots. Matt Jones was pretty disappointing, only seven fantasy points, but he did outscore Sam Darnold by 10 fantasy points. How is that? Well, Sam Darnold's fourth career game with negative fantasy points. It's just simply brutal. Uh, the Panthers needed to trade for Deshaun Watson yesterday. And I think they will in the offseason. The Patriots, winners of three straight, four of their last five, are just half a game back of the Buffalo Bills for the AFC East lead. Their lead back, Damian Harris, with a season-low 45% rush share, finishing as the RB36 on the week. Ramon J. Stevenson averaged six yards per carry against seven-man fronts. Both of those running backs exited the game and are currently in the concussion protocol. As you mentioned, Sam Darnold continues to see ghosts. He hasn't had a top 12 week since week four. If only there was a resource you had somewhere around that time telling you to sell. He's thrown just two touchdowns to eight interceptions since then. Recent tests discovered a fracture in his shoulder, and he's going to miss about four weeks. He was placed on the IR earlier today. It's P.J. Walker time. Another overtime game and another loss for the Minnesota Vikings as they fall to the Ravens 34-31 and Lamar Jackson reminds us all who he is en route to finishing as the QB1 on the week. Rashad Bateman has seen six or more targets in each of the three games he's played over his rookie campaign. Tyler Conklin with back-to-back -back seven target weeks. He's among the top 10 tight ends in yards and receptions on the season. Minnesota Vikings currently dead last in rushing touchdowns in the NFL with just three on the season. No lead is safe versus the Baltimore Ravens. This marks their third double-digit comeback of the year. Before this year, they haven't won a game, went down by 10 or more points since September of 2016. In Cincy, the Brownies win the battle for Ohio convincingly, 41-16. to uh, See, I told you to sell Joe Burrow. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, get no those laps in while you can. <laughs> no victory lap here, uh, but this game was his second-worst fantasy performance in his short career. Uh, but it was by far his, his worst actual performance, if you watch. It really was a brutal one for Joey Burrow. On the other side, Baker Mayfield got Odell off his back and played the best game of his year. He posted a pass rating of 132.6. That's his fifth game over 130. 
And of those five games, Odell was only active for the Browns in one of them and didn't register a single catch. Baker Mayfield forever more valuable to the Cleveland Browns than he will be for your fantasy team. For Cincinnati, Joe Mixon had a 12% target share or better in three of his last four games. Nice to see him getting involved in all phases of the offense. Baker Mayfield, like I said, another good NFL day. Bit of a dud fantasy output because he has yet to throw for three touchdowns in a game this season. We all know Baker better without Odell Beckham, but Nick Chubb actually has a rushing touchdown in each of his last nine games played without the superstar or ex-superstar wide receiver. Next up, one of the nicest shootouts that we saw this week, the Bills fall to the Jags 6-9 in Jacksonville. Josh Allen with his worst fantasy day in over a year. Stephon Diggs held under 100 yards for the seventh time in eight games this season. And Jamal Agnew continues to be the alpha wide receiver for Jacksonville. He's out-targeted both Marvin Jones and LaVishka Chenault since the DJ Chark injury. James Robinson is expected back this week against the stout Colts defense. Yep, the Jags made it dirty and stole a win from the Bills, that's for sure. Uh, such a low-scoring uh, day, the defense definitely won out. And, uh, but I'll take this as a throwaway game for the Bills offense. It is notable that Zach Moss was concussed in this one, so look for Devin Singletary to be a bit of a sleeper this upcoming week versus the Jets, especially if Moss continues to miss some time. Uh, these Bills, the fourth team since 1978 that have scored six or fewer points when favored by 15 or more points. Not their best performance. Next up in Miami, the Dolphins get their second win of the season over the Houston Texans, 17-9. Miles Gaskin has a season-high 83% rush share, but manages just 34 yards on the ground. Jalen Waddle also a big volume hog as he sees 10 or more targets for the third time in his last four games. Will Fuller declared out early this week for Thursday Night Football. The Texans have lost eight straight games in a season for the first time dating back to 2013. Yeah, Tua was the surprise inactive in this one. Pay attention, he may miss this upcoming week as well. Uh, other than that, I have nothing. Just forget that this game existed. Next up to the Jersey Giants, where they get the win over the Vegas Raiders, 23-16. Kyle Rudolph pulls in a 30% target share, while Evan Ingram, Kenny Galladay, and Kadarius Toney all at 15% or below. As we mentioned last week, Zay Jones was on the field, replacing Henry Ruggs for 96% of the Raiders' snap in Week 9, just didn't turn into any fantasy points. This week will be the first time since Week 1 that Darren Waller goes over 65 yards or 5 catches. And Hunter Renfro continues to be a volume hog as well. Seven catches and hasn't seen fewer than five in eight out of his nine games this season. Another upset and another just straight up weird game. I mean, Kenyon Drake for the third straight week is a top 12 running back. So pay attention to his usage going forward. And the Raiders are getting that deep threat capability back with the signing of Deshaun Jackson. Not to say that he is what Henry Ruggs is at this point in his career, but it should help that offense in general going forward. Over to Philly with the Eagles fall short late against the Chargers, 27 to 24. Devontae Smith had five catches of 15 plus yards in this one, led the league in explosive catches this week. And Justin Herbert completed 84% of his passes. The Eagles defense has allowed an average completion percentage of 75% so far this year. That is by far the highest in football. And even in a losing effort, the Eagles continue to run the football. They've had 66 running back carries over the last two weeks after attempting just 27 the previous two. In correspondence, Jalen Hurts has averaged 15.5 pass attempts after averaging just below 35 per game before week eight. One of his main targets, Dallas Goddard, has a target share of 32.5 since the Urch trade. So he's getting the targets, just needs a little bit more volume. 
Next up to Arrowhead, where the Chiefs beat Jordan Love and the Packers 13-7. Jordan Love shaky in his debut, but wasn't given much of a chance with the Pack's performance up front. The Chiefs bought pressure on 21 out of 39 passing plays, and Love was under pressure on 19 of those dropbacks. The Chiefs moved to a perfect 4-0 against the NFC this season. This was the fourth game this year in which the Chiefs, a Chiefs averaged more yards per rushing play than yards per pass play. Pretty crazy stat when we think about the wow. Chiefs' offense over the past few years. They've only had three such games from 2018 to 2020. Back to California, where the Kyler List Cardinals beat the 49ers 31 to 17. Say that five times fast. Kyler List Cardinals. 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 George Kittle did shine wow. in the loss, though. And <laughs> in coming back from injury, George notched his 11th 100-yard game, matching Greg Olson's career total. Brandon Ayuk is a phoenix rising from the ashes. Uh, now with back-to-back -back good weeks after the miserable start to his season. The true story in this one was James Car James Conner. Without Chase Edmonds, Conner went bananas. B-A-N-A-N-A-S. Bananas. To the tune of 26 opportunities, 173 yards, and three touchdowns. His career best fantasy performance since week 8, 2018 can't believe you're going to make me put a Gwen Stefani drop on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Elijah Mitchell continues to see the bulk of San Francisco's carries with an 89% of the rush attempts, adding a 13% target share. Jeff Wilson was active in this game, but did not record a snap. And the aforementioned Chase Edmonds, a high ankle sprain, expected to land him on the short-term IR. Next up, Sunday Night Football, where the Titans win their fifth straight in this Super Bowl 34 rematch. Matt Stafford sacked five times on the evening after taking just seven sacks on the season up until that point. The Titans, nice, 69 rushing yards, their fewest in a win since Week 3, 2012, against Matt Stafford's Detroit Lions. Yep, right after I called Stafford the MVP, he lays an egg in prime time. Typical. Uh, but on the bright side, we now have six consecutive weeks of where Robert Woods has either 70-plus yards or a touchdown. Look to marry those up here soon have a big week. On the other side, there wasn't much offensive output, so little in fact that this marks the first time since 2006 that a team has been outgained by at least 150 yards while being held to fewer than 200 yards in a victory by more by 12 or more points on a Thursday in November when it isn't raining and more than 65 degrees outside. Yeah, Got it. That's like a baseball stat for you. <laughs> sure is. All right, closing it down in Pittsburgh where the Yinzers went to bed happy. The Steelers beat the Bears 29-27. to Justin Fields had his best game as a pro versus one of the best defenses in football. Very encouraging to see, especially after the start to his season. Najee Harris went off as usual. He's on pace for 404 touches. The only rookie running backs with 400 plus touches in a season are Eric Dickerson and Edron James. Great company to be in. Pat Fryer Moose, he's hot. He has six <laughs> red zone targets and four touchdowns this season. The rook is looking good. Hey, we all know about Bill Belichick's dominance against rookie quarterbacks, but Mike Tomlin, head coach of the Steelers, is now 23 and four against rookie starting quarterbacks as the Steelers head coach. David Montgomery leads all running backs in Week 9 snap rate, playing 86.8% .8 of Chicago's offensive plays, and no word yet on a possible fine or suspension from the Knights crew chief, Tony Carrenti. <laughs> a little stinger to close it out, huh? I think he deserves it. He catches a stray at the end of the recap. <laughs> Tony, if you're listening, fuck off. 
on to our rebuilders and contenders buys and sells. We're going to start with the buys. Kyle, you're up. Okay, so my buy this week, going back to the tight end position where I'm going to tell you now is the time to buy Tyler Higby. If you're so a Tyler contender. Higby. Yes, sorry, if you're a contender. <laughs> if you are rebuilding, yes, this 28-year-old tight end may not serve what you're looking for so well. So Tyler Higby, currently the tight end 14 on the season, smack dab between the aforementioned Pratt Pat Fryermuth, <laughs> Pat Pry, Jesus, I can't even say it. Going slow, Pat Fryermuth. Uh, sat next to Sexbook Teddy on the. Oh, <laughs> uh, him, that guy, and Zach Ertz. Tyler Higby has been a bit unimpressive through this start of the season. Through nine games, he's been held to 35 catches for 324 yards and just two touchdowns. That's a 17 game pace of 66 catches, 612 yards, and just four touchdowns. But some encouraging things to think about when we're looking at Higby. So he's had five or more targets in six out of his nine games this season, including 10 this last week on Sunday Night Football. He has a target share of just 15%, which is down at fourth on the Rams just behind Van Jefferson. And I know, don't get it confused with what I was talking about last week, where we're not looking for these third and fourth options on a team. We're talking about the tight end position. Just remember that. I'm not talking about a wide receiver here. And yes, if Tyler, Tyler Higby was a wide receiver, I would not be telling you to buy. But he does play the worst position in fantasy. That is, if you already have gotten rid of kickers. If not, do so yesterday. So a target share of just 15% is not that encouraging. But however, his catch rate, 75% is encouraging. That leads everybody on the Rams, <clears throat> that leads everybody on the Rams who has seen 10 or more targets. And even with Cooper Cup dominating in the red zone, Tyler Higby has a red zone target share of 20%. Now that's the type of number that we're looking for. That's the ninth highest in the league among all players and easily first among tight ends. These are high value targets that we're talking about, especially, especially at the tight end position where a touchdown can literally make or break your week. You want that tight end who's getting those high value targets in the red zone and Higby's getting more than any other tight end in the league. Looking down the stretch, now it's only a few weeks away, but the Rams have a great fantasy playoff schedule. Seattle, Minnesota, and Baltimore in the final three weeks. Seattle and Baltimore currently 28th and 31st in passing yards allowed per game and are ranked 17th and 30th in fantasy points allowed to tight ends. Now, fantasy points allowed to tight ends is not incredibly predictive. I will give you that. It's more of a just who have you played. If you started your season against Travis Kelsey, Darren Waller, George Kittle, Kyle Pitts, obviously it's going to look a lot different. There's only four or five, maybe six guys in the league who are really difference makers at the tight end position. Higby's not one of those guys. I'm not trying to sell him as that guy. He's not going to be the next Kyle Pitts, the next George Kittle, the next Travis Kelsey. That's not in his range of outcomes. He is, however, a guy who can get you through the fantasy playoffs if the rest of your team is solid. He has the usage so far that signals positive regression, screams by. His peripherals are there. The high-value targets are there. The offense has been funneling through Cooper Cup. 
And there's a possibility that it lasts the rest of the season, but I'm not betting on that. Cooper Cup is off to a historic start to the season through the first nine weeks. If he continues this, he's going to have one of, if not the best wide receiver season that we've ever seen. If you expect it to slow down a little bit, we talked about Robert Woods could be a beneficiary, but I think Tyler Higby is going to be the biggest beneficiary on the Rams, which is why now I think is the time to buy Tyler Higby. Yeah, I like this call. I like Tyler Higby coming in the year. He has been a little disappointing, but that's why he's, you know, a buy low candidate. I think this right, is right. a this is a kind of like I want to bulletproof my roster kind of move. Like I have good tight or I have good wide receivers. I have good running backs. I have a starting quarterback or two that I'm confident in. But if you mm-hmm. don't have a tight end you're you're confident in throwing out there in the playoffs, that could that could be the death knell for your team when you're going up against the other solid teams that have made the playoffs. You know, if you have uh, the third best roster in the league, but you have the the sixth best tight end in the playoffs, that could be the reason why you lose. So you want to try to get one of these guys that has that positive regression incoming. Uh, I have one question for you, though. Shoot. Out of, you know, with all the context you listed as a contender, where would you rank him rest of the season? Or at least, you know, for a, a team that is a tight end away from a championship. Ooh, so let's look at the top tight ends on the season so far. Let me pull that up real quick. So as of right now, uh, top few tight top few tight ends: Travis Kelsey number one, Mark Andrews number two, Mike Gesicki actually number three, Kyle Pitts, T.J. Hawkinson, Darren Waller. Right there is pretty close to I think after Waller to where I would put him. Next up, we have guys like Dalton Schultz, Hunter Henry, who's been carried by the amount of touchdowns, Dawson Knox, who's banged up, CJ Uzama, who just seems to have a random just 25-point performance every three weeks or so. I don't think that's sustainable. Um, So right, I think, in that range, I think is probably where his ceiling is at. So probably somewhere around the tight end 7, tight end 8. But I think his floor is what we have seen to this point, which has put him just outside the top 12 at the tight end 14, as I talked about earlier. So if I were to bet on where he would be, I would probably lay my cards at around the tight end seven or tight end eight. But one thing you brought up that I think is the main reason that I want to bring him up. We do this for everyone. When we talk about buy or sells. You and I could go out here every week and tell you, Hey, you need to go buy Patrick Mahomes or you need to go buy Derrick Henry when he's healthy or Christian McCaffrey. Like no shit. All right. We're telling you these guys because they're actually obtainable. And Tyler Higby is obtainable right now. Like you were talking about, you're not going to steal Travis Kelsey from a contender or Darren Waller or George Kittle or Kyle Pitts. Okay. But Tyler Higby is someone you could theoretically go out there and get. Yeah. You stole the words right out of my mouth. That's why I asked you because I knew he was going to be right after those untouchables and you're Mm -hmm. not going to be able to trade. Obviously they're untouchable. You're not gonna be able to trade for him. So if you need to fill that roster spot, with a tight end you can confidently throw out there, especially in the playoffs against these cupcake defenses that they're going to be seeing. He's your guy. I think it's a really good call. Thanks, man. Yeah, don't get used to it. On to my <laughs> buy uh, for rebuilders. It's going to be Michael Gallup. So, Michael Gallup isn't the most obvious buy, but I think he's one that is a low-risk, high-reward target for rebuilders. In year four now, he's missed – seven and a half games out of the eight games the Cowboys have played. So it's easy to just forget and, uh, you know, forget how productive he's been, especially when we bring in the context of his performances in 2018, 19, and 20. So Michael Gallup came in the league 2018, third round pick to the Cowboys out of Colorado State. The big uh, concern with him was not his athleticism, was not his college production. It was how does his level of competition that he saw at Colorado State obviously far lower than the NFL. How does that translate? How does his game 
translate from that low competition to what he's going to see with NFL cornerbacks and so on. So his rookie year, he came in, he saw 68 targets, 500 yards, and two touchdowns. Nothing special. His sophomore year is what I really want to focus on because it, it was really good, and it's kind of unsung, and we've forgotten about it because it has been two years ago, and, and two years in fantasy is a lifetime. So what really stands out? He had 100 targets. He had 68 catches, 1,100-plus yards, six touchdowns, and it was coming primarily from the outside, not a slot receiver, so it was not exactly a replaceable asset. So that year, he was top 24 in the league in all the raw stats you love to see. Receptions, yards, yards after the catch, touchdown, air yards, and fantasy points. But he was top five in some very particular efficiency stats like yards per reception, yards per target, yards per route run, right? So those are all great things we want to see. So all the points about his level of competition concerns were answered. He was succeeding at a high level versus NFL competition as a 23-year-old in his second year in the NFL. The big problem he had that year was drops. He led the league in drops with 11. It's not good, but good news is it did not persist into 2020. But what happened in 2020, which I'm sure we all remembered because he's now a fantasy household name, is C.D. Lamb was drafted in the first round of the Cowboys. And C.D. definitely earned the production he got. And it, 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 it ended up bringing Gallup's target share down from 22 to 17% in that offense. He still had over 800 yards and five touchdowns, catching passes from Ben DiNucci and the Red Rocket. That was the year that Dak, that was last year, the year that Dak went down, I believe, in week mm-hmm. four. So, from what I've mentioned there and his profile coming into the league, I think Gallup has shown that he can be a number two wide receiver on any team, and that he'll have that shot coming up this year because in three in three months he's a free agent, and in an off season where teams are getting a rebound in cap space after. Uh, the pandemic season a year ago, he's going to get paid, in my opinion. I think he's going to get a nice contract. And he's not going to get paid like Chris Godwin is going to get paid, um, but he's going to get paid a nice contract somewhere because the Cowboys have other players they have to pay before they can even think about re-signing their wide receiver three. And uh, they're not going to they're not gonna franchise right. tag him at the wide receiver figure, which is massive. So he's definitely going on the market. So what if he lands somewhere like Buffalo or Kansas City uh, to be the wide receiver two in that offense, I think that I think that would be a fantastic landing spot. Or what if he goes to Tampa Bay if they can't um, bring back Chris Godwin on a new contract or a franchise tag? These are all fantastic places. What if he even goes to a poor offense that's throwing the ball a ton, and he gets wide receiver one type volume as the wide receiver two on an offense? I think these are all really good possibilities, and it leads to his ceiling being very high. And his upside is worth the low cost you can get him at. I don't know what you would you would pay for him, but I think you can get him for a third-round pick in rookie drafts. Um, I think you can get him for a depth piece to a contender. Um, I think you can get him for uh, a lot of other veteran players that aren't going to be useful to you yeah. as a rebuilder. So I think he's a great buy. So you and I have talked about Michael Gallup before, and I let you know that I'm not the biggest Michael Gallup guy, but there are some things – that could absolutely point to this move working out. So first of all, the injury. The injury obviously has sidelined him since back in week one, but he doesn't have any sort of an injury history coming up to this point. He played all 16 games his rookie year, his third year, and missed just two in his sophomore year, that great 2019 season that you were talking about. The reason, obviously... It's probably not going to be a big breakout this year, which is why you want him as a contender, is obviously the situation he's in, being the number three receiver in the offense, and maybe really just the number four, even number five 
op- or just weapon in the offense when you want to talk about bringing Ezekiel Elliott, Tony Pollard, Dalton Schultz, and how involved they are in the offense. But there, there are some encouraging things. One is Amari Cooper has the potential out in his contract. That was talked about a lot back when C.D. Lamb was drafted, and I don't think it's really been talked about a lot lately. But he does have the potential out after this season, and Dallas is going to need it. As of right now, they're $9 million over the cap for 2022. So they're going to have to make some changes. And it's a, and it's a uh, cap hit, I believe, of over twenty, yeah, $22 million for Amari Cooper next year. So there's one move that Dallas makes, and suddenly not only are they back under the cap, but they even have a little bit of a room to play around. So I, I don't want to say it's a foregone conclusion, but I would say it's incredibly likely that they do move on from Amari Cooper after this season, which could open the door for Michael Gallup to come back as the number two in that Dallas offense. And if it doesn't happen, like you're saying, he may go somewhere else. He's still only 25 years old. And I don't think that we've seen anything out of him to his career in his career so far to label him one way or another. He had a very good sophomore season, like you were saying. You're number three. He was number three in an offense that was playing backups and backups of backups and the backups of backups of backups. Like everyone remembers the Ben DiNucci experience, okay? That didn't just affect CD Lamb and Amari Cooper. Gallup was affected as well. And he still finishes a low end wide receiver three on the season. So. I think now is the time, if you are convinced, coming back from this injury, his value is going to shift a lot, I think, over this last half of the fantasy season and the NFL season, seeing how involved he gets in the offense. Because if he buys himself a big contract where he can go somewhere next year as the number two or maybe even the number one option, or if he just does enough to the Dallas front office to make them say, okay, we can move on from Amari Cooper. We got our guy in Michael Gallup. Either of those are wins, like I think you're saying. And so I think now is the time to get in. The interesting thing is he had seven targets in week one before he got injured. Uh, yes. So it looked like they wanted to get him involved and keep him involved in that offense. Like you said, there's so many weapons on that offense. If you're getting scheme touches, it's probably because you deserve them. And not to mention, I mean, it's kind of hard to, to remember what, what kind of player Michael Gallup is because he's overshadowed by all the guys on that offense. But he is an outside receiver. You can't really just get those in free agency. Uh, they don't come up in free agency very often, guys that you can plug and play as an out- outside X receiver. Uh, but he's built like, well, I mean, 6'1", 205. That's like Jamar Chase build right there. Obviously, he's not Jamar Chase, but just to give you sure. a frame of reference, he's built like that. Um, so I think I think he really has more versatility than people think of him as. And I just think the general perception of him is way lower than it should be. Um, I would definitely try to buy him for a third in, in rookie drafts. I, I'm not sure what, what you would pay for him, but that would be mine. Um, I think he's, if you're sold on him, and this is coming from a guy who would go on the record and say that he's not, but if you are sold on him, I think he's worthy of a top 20 pick in a, from a rookie draft. And I, th- I think you you still have a long career in front of him. I'm not worried about the injury. So if you are sold on him, I, I don't really hesitate to throw out a... So if I'm a contender, I'm, I really don't want to part with a number two pick. But if you have a lingering veteran on your team who you just don't see helping your team two, three years from now, that's the kind of piece that you deal away from Michael Gallup. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, this this one, when you do grade it, you're not going to be able to give me like a... It's gonna, just going to be no. incomplete. Because this, and that's this just one gonna is a be, long-term grade. Yeah, that's going to be a lot of these rebuilders that we talked about. Whenever we did the first third recap, we had a lot of those. And not not many victory laps to be run either way. Although I will say that since we had that show, how good does my A.J. Dillon pick look? Oh, Gosh, yeah, you got in one, when I told you to. That one has been good. I didn't get victory laps at the time. You gave me an incomplete, so I'm going to go run them around now before hey, we get to the ahead. cells. All right, man. We're going on to the cells. 
sell. No, 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 take just get it out of here. You can sell anything, sell, sell, sell me this pen right here. You can sell anything, sell that. We all sell out every day. Might as well be on the winning team. Sell! Time for me. Oh, shit. <laughs> Time for me. If you're pissed off now, just wait until you hear my sell. If you're a contender, get away from Damian Harris. The time is now to sell your preseason darling. And I wasn't really that sold on him, but he has exceeded my expectations, I would say, slightly. He's right now a mid-range RB2, currently the RB16 on the season in between Melvin Gordon and James Robinson. I thought that this was probably somewhere around his ceiling. You, before the season, this was one of the guys who you said he's being criminally undervalued because I think he was going as he was going in like the 8th, ninth, 10th round of redraft and ranked by everyone as a low 20s uh, running back. So he's definitely overperformed where you were able to acquire him, what you were able to acquire him for. But I think he's overperformed at a non-sustainable rate, and I'm going to tell you why. So right now, like I said, RB16 on the season. He's carried the ball 133 times for 547 yards and seven touchdowns. Those seven rushing touchdowns are tied for fourth in the league, and we all know how we feel about touchdowns. The most volatile stat in fantasy football. They are not sticky. Six of those seven touchdowns have come in the last five games. He has scored every single week for the New England Patriots, dating back to week five. It's a touchdown rate that's been inflated due to a relatively easy fantasy schedule. So through his first nine games, five of those have come against teams who are below league average in fantasy points allowed to running backs. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but it is a cakewalk compared to the second half schedule that he's going to face. So coming up weeks 10 through 17, Harris is going to get just one game, one game rest of season against a team who has been below average to this point in fantasy points allowed to the running backs. That's in a couple of weeks when they play Atlanta. So he's taken advantage of a pretty easy to moderate, I guess you would say, fantasy schedule. But that's going to completely change. Like the way we talk about Denver and everyone's projecting the second half breakout for Javante Williams because that second half schedule is so good for running backs on paper right now for the Denver Broncos. It's the exact opposite schedule when you look at the New England Patriots. Harris is averaging 8.2 fantasy points per game in half PPR against those teams that are in the top half of the league in fantasy points allowed to running back. He's averaging 8.4 half PPR games in losses. He's averaging 14.2 half PPR points per game in wins. So what does that tell you? It tells me that he's a matchup dependent running back. When the New England Patriots are doing well, Damian Harris will do well. But when they're not, he is not a scheme proof plug and play type running back. He's matchup dependent because he's not game script proofed. He can easily be scripted out of a game because he does not catch passes. His 11 catches on the season ranks 51st among running backs. With a guy who's playing as they lead back for a team to rank 51st among running backs, that's low. That's rough. That's only 11 more than I have this season. And it's half of what his teammate Brandon Bolden has had with well fewer snaps for the Pats and still behind his teammate James White. James White hasn't played since week three. He had more catches in those first two weeks and change that we've seen out of Damian Harris this entire season. All right, and we're talking about contenders, so we got to finish off talking about what the fantasy playoffs look like. Fantasy playoffs, the Indianapolis Colts, the Buffalo Bills, and the Jacksonville Jaguars. All three of those teams rank in the top eight in yards per carry allowed to running backs. Indy and Buffalo rank in the top eight with fewest touchdowns allowed to running backs. And in total, they rank fifth, 
first and 12th in fewest fantasy points allowed to the running back position. So two elite defenses against the run in Indy and Buffalo. Jacksonville, who does nothing league average except for stop the run. They are actually a pretty good team at stopping the run, stuffing the ball carrier. The thing is, they're losing every game by the second half, and so they're getting so much volume against it that the fantasy points just sort of end up there. They don't get Jacksonville until your fantasy finals, and if you're depending on Damian Harris to get you there, I don't think you're playing in the ship. Yeah, I mean, it, it hurts. I mean, I think you're right. It just sucks because week one, <laughs> Damian Harris had like 100 yards. I was like, all right, man, you know, good start. Things are looking up. And then, like you said, week three, James White goes down, and I'm like, all right, there's a bunch of passing volume opening it up. And then they signed Brandon mm. Bolden. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that just a Belichick move right yeah, there? Yeah, it's such a Patriots backfield disaster. And I, everyone should have seen it coming, myself included. Uh, so Damian Harris is going to be one of those guys that you're going to want to start because he is technically like the lead back. Uh, but like you said, I mean, he's got two games against Buffalo. That's rough. Uh, yeah. A game against the, the Colts. That's rough. Titans defense is getting better. He's got the Browns next week. That's rough. Um, and then closes out with the Jaguars, <laughs> which I mean, by the end of the seag- season, the Jaguars will probably have given up on everything. Um, so they might be. Able I think to that happened back in week one. <laughs> they, they might be able to run on the Jags come week sixteen or, or seventeen, whatever. Seventeen it is, but, now, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, and but man, that's yeah, that's rough. And one last thing on Damian Harris, he's only had three games this season where you saw more than 50% of the snaps, and this is in a season where, like you, like we talked about, James White was down week three. And it looked like he was the only guy you could count on for a stable role in this offense. That should have opened the door to Damian Harris, but we're seeing a lot more Ramondre Stevenson in the last few weeks. And it is worth mentioning, obviously, that Harris and Stevenson, like we said in the recap, are both in the concussion protocol. So you may not be able to sell them right this minute. But if for some reason he comes through against Cleveland, has himself a good day, maybe scores another touchdown, I think it's the time to go. If you can't sell him this week, because of the concussion or whatever, it might be better to sell him after the Falcons game. Um, yeah, if you can wait to week game. 11, depending on your trade deadline or just yeah. the state of your league or anything, week 11, like I said, he gets Atlanta, and that is his only fantasy-friendly matchup remaining this season. Yeah, and they've been they've bleeded points to, to running back, so you could probably get away with that. But All right, I'm going to close it out with my rebuilder sell, and this one is going to hurt a lot of people's feelings. DeAndre Hopkins is my rebuilder Luke. sell. So he's near and dear to my heart. I drafted him in our first Dynasty startup. Kyle, you were there. Uh, I was there. actually chose him over Allen Robinson at the time, but whatever. Uh, he's been a fantasy stud for years, and I think we have to start looking at him as a depreciating asset. He's averaged over 160 targets over the past six years. To be exact, he hasn't seen less than 150 targets since 2016. Even his first year in Arizona last year, he had 160 targets. It's crazy impressive for even elite wide receivers to see that that type of uh, target total. But this year, he's on pace for a much lower target volume. His rate over a 16-game pace would be about 107 targets. Over a 17-game pace, obviously different this year, it would be 114 targets, well below his, uh, his prime average the past few years. And even with that big decrease in targets, he's still a wide receiver too. And it's the same reason why any player who overperforms their peripheral numbers ends up higher than they should be. It's because of touchdowns. His efficiency is bananas, and it's it's fickle, right? That's why we always want to chase volume over efficiency in fantasy football, and that's the crux of this argument right here. Nuck has, hey, Nuck has averaged 
0.9 touchdowns per game. That's good for fourth in the league at the wide receiver position, only behind Cooper Cup, Mike Evans, and DK Metcalf. His other per-game statistics aren't nearly that impressive. 38th in the league in receptions per game, 29th in the league in yards per game. And as we know, those are more predictive of what to expect going forward in terms of a consistent performance. So you might be thinking this is only half a season. He's shown us better. He's shown us that he's better than this. Uh, maybe it's a fluke. And you might be right, but what I would say to, def- to refute that is that the Cardinals are the best they've been in years. And it's because of their mm-hmm. current formula. They have Kyler playing at a near el- elite, you know, MVP level. And I don't think they would want to revert to hyper targeting one player when their division of labor, so to speak, has worked out so well for them. I mean, you see guys like Christian Kirk having a big day. A.J. Green having uh, good games here and there. Rondell Moore having a blowout game here and there. That is working for them. Uh, Max Williams, before he went out, had a few blowout games. Zach Ertz has had a few games. Chase Edmonds has gotten a ton of targets. This is working for them. I don't think they're going to be just go back to targeting Nuke at a super high volume. I mean, maybe in critical situations, uh, but that doesn't really lead to massive fantasy performances that we're used to seeing from him. So, Nuke still has some years left of production for sure. I don't think he's he's dead and buried just yet. Uh, but there is a cautionary tale that stands out about a former wide receiver that, that is very similar to him uh, from the past, from the recent past. On playerprofiler.com, his best comparable player is Michael Crabtree. If you look at Michael Crabtree's career, he really started to slow down and see a reduction in targets specifically and yards in his ninth season at age 30. This year just so happens to be Nuke's ninth season, and he's at age 29, about 29 and a half. Now, obviously, I think DeAndre Hopkins is better than Michael Crabtree ever was, but the fact remains that their profilers, profiles are very similar, um, whether it be uh, in terms of measurables and athletic ability. Uh, they're very similar, and the chances there that we're seeing the end of Nuke's career approaching. And like I said, I still think he has a few years left, but if you're a rebuilder and the end is near, you want to get out from him now, similar to my, my call about Dalvin Cook a few weeks ago. You want to get rid of these guys at their peak value and don't be stubborn and just see the name on your roster and be roster yep. baiting over guys like Dalvin Cook and DeAndre Hopkins. If they're not going to progress your agenda, which is taking it down to the studs and rebuilding it back up, then you need to get rid of them at their highest volume. So their highest value. So if you're a rebuilder, I think it's time to sell DeAndre Hopkins. And his perception is still very worth you know, it's, it's it's worth a lot in fantasy football. It's still he's still looked at as one of the you know top five to ten elite wide receivers in the game. So now is the time to get a ton out of him as a rebuilder. Yep, I'm fine with this. If you can trade him for a haul, uh, first round pick and change, I think you can. I think he still demands that, it's, especially if you're talking about dealing him to a contender, which should be the type of team that you're looking to target when you move away DeAndre Hopkins. So I think you can get. Uh, it'll be probably somewhere around the 108 to the 112. You can get that and more for DeAndre Hopkins still right now. And you take that pick and you start working on your foundation for the future. Um, looking back at DeAndre Hopkins' career fantasy finishes, dating back to 2017, wide receiver one, wide receiver two, wide receiver four, wide receiver four, and then this year, wide receiver 19. So obviously we're only halfway through the season, but just – you can see the bar graph or, the, or the, the line graph going right now where that just elite of elite performance. You had a great career. Hopefully when you're selling DeAndre Hopkins, if you are in this rebuilder mode, hopefully you were able to reap some of those benefits over the last four years because he's been one of the best players in fantasy and eventual Hall of Fame talent. But I'm, I'm perfectly okay with getting him and I'm looking back at because you made this move 
about a year ago, you traded away DeAndre Hopkins at peak value. And looking back now at the return that you were able to get from him. So you traded away in a package deal to a rebuilder, mind you, DeAndre Hopkins, Royce Freeman, and a 2022 third round pick. You got back Stefan Diggs, Kareem Hunt, and a 2021 first, which I believe you turned into Travis Etienne. Yeah. And then that was turned into something else, but yeah. And then obviously since then, I mean, we're always wheeling and dealing. Yeah. It's, it's a way that, to win. But, but that was before Stefan Diggs went bananas. So right. this is right after but you he still, got traded to Buffalo. So I don't want people to think like, oh, you raped him. It's like, oh, well, yeah. look well, at I mean, that. Yeah. But. <laughs> <laughs> but at the time it was very much consensual. Like you traded away the, one of the best two or three wide receivers in football and but what did, look at what you got. You got a first-round pick. You got a talented wide receiver who was, who was just sort of a wild card, but we know Stephon Diggs' talent. And then you got Kareem Hunt, who at that time we knew was a usable running back. If you can find two or three future pieces that are going to play pivotal roles for your team in the future and trade DeAndre, DeAndre Hopkins for that, I'm perfectly okay with it. Because if you're not winning this year, it's, I, just don't, I don't think it's getting any better for Nuke. Great career. Look back on it in amazement and enjoyment and appreciate it for what it was, but it's never going to be as good as it has been moving forward. You know, the crazy part is he got traded again in that league for an entire draft class. Yes. Yes, he did. It <laughs> he was, did. yeah, the very next. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. A first, uh, two-thirds, two-fourths, and a fifth. For yep. DeAndre Hopkins. That was just like a month or two after <laughs> after that deal. How do you ship off an entire draft class? That's insane. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that'll do it for our rebuilders and contenders, buys and sells. On to our final segment. Do you remember? Oh, I remember. Do you remember Devery Henderson? Devery? Devery. D-E-V-E-R-Y. New Orleans Saints wide receiver. Devery Henderson. What? Dude, were were you playing fantasy football in the late 2000s, early 2010s? Yeah, but not Because if so, you should have known. Not nearly as uh, intense as I was now. Oh, my gosh. I'm I'm let down on you here. But Uh, Devery Henderson. So came in the league in 2004, never played for anyone else, played for the Saints his whole career. But he was part of those Saints teams every year with Marcus Colston and Drew Brees and Reggie Bush, the just amazing offense that they had because they had no defense on the other side of the ball. And he actually had some some pretty good fantasy seasons. He went over 700 yards, one, two, three, three times in his career, led the league in yards per reception a couple times. So he's the type of guy you'd be taking towards the back end of your drafts. It's just sort of that weekly fill-in. But, he, again, he was playing across from Marcus Colston as sort of the spread-the-field type guy whenever Drew Brees could still throw the ball more than 30 yards. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, dude, I'm, I'm disappointed in myself. I should know this. Yeah, it's a bit of a letdown. It sort of stole my steam. I was scrolling across my names. I was like, oh, Devery Henderson. That's a good one. I, I enjoyed Denver. Oh, enjoyed and him. And he's a yellow LSU wide receiver? Man, I should Speaking of LSU wide receivers, Odell Beckham has still not signed. Oh. <laughs> Wouldn't it be fitting if we could get it in before the end of the show? Be great, totally blue balled me there. <laughs> <sighs> that was the goal, but anyway, yeah, unfortunately, you, you wanted we can't to blue get ball me. That was the goal. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! If you want to know where Odell Beckham signs before anyone else, make sure you follow us on Twitter at fflexecution. F L E X E C U T I O N. Follow me on Twitter at 
FF Master Debater. All right, folks. I hope you learned something. Peace.